Okay, we are studying the book of Hebrews and uh, Hebrews 10 and we are in verse 8. Hebrews 10 and verse 8. It says here, After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So this verse 8 is a reiteration of what we already discussed last week and perhaps the week before, and that is these passages in the Old Testament that says that God doesn't desire burnt offerings. Now, the alternative that we read about, for instance, in Psalm 51 was uh, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Those God will not despise. So, as we also discussed in the book of Malachi, when they were through just rote repetition, bringing their offerings, but they really felt like it was some duty they had to perform. They didn't. They wish they didn't have to do. That was displeasing to God, because. Religious duty is not a substitute for faith and trust and love. The things that would be the God's looking for that are internal. So David knew that and he mentioned that. Now I have a question here out of this verse that, that I hope uh, invokes some discussion. Though God did not desire these, The law prescribed them. How is it possible that God would command something in one passage that elsewhere it says He doesn't desire? Okay, teach us our need for Him. Are there other examples of this? Yes, Keith. I think it's because He was His ultimate sacrifice was kept hidden in secret. It was a mystery to them in looking forward. So because he didn't show them the, the completion of what his, his plans were, he gave them a, a, a drama, or almost a theater, you know, a, a play, so you could see and observe something that was coming and have faith in what he was going to do or what he was doing, but even if it wasn't the completion of itself. Okay, so in the sense that the blood of the bulls and goats were just a foretaste, but it wasn't the thing itself. Because even though we know that the blood of goats and bulls don't forgive sin in and of itself, what was forgiving in the blood of goats and bulls was that God had prescribed it, that we believed God, and that He had an ultimate lamb that was coming that was going to fulfill this faith that we had. Okay, so the faith ultimately is looking forward to God's sacrifice that He is pleased with. That's true. Oh well, we don't want to we don't want to take away all your sermon before you get to it, Ryan. <laughs> okay, I uh, Dick. Certainly, certainly, what what God was pleased with was a heartfelt obedience because of faith. The obedience of faith. 
That's pleasing to God, but just the act of sacrifice in and of itself was it? Well, the sacrifice temporarily took care of the sin, covered the sin, but God desires obedience so that the sacrifice isn't required because all sin has consequences. And uh, even though it may be forgiven, you still may have to deal with the consequence of that sin. Okay. But in a sense, you can prove that the blood of goats and bulls didn't take away sin because all the pagans sacrificed bulls and goats as well. And if it was the blood that took away the sin, then the pagans would have been uh, forgiven as well. Okay. Right? right. Because they were doing. They were also sacrificing bulls and goats. Yeah, only to different gods in, in their own way. In faith. Right. So that's a consistent theme, which is leading us to the next chapter eventually, which is without faith it's impossible to please God. Uh, Just a little more technical piece of theology, if you're interested in it this morning. Um, We often distinguish distinguish between God's desire or wish and God's decree. And, for example... It says in 1 Timothy 2 that God does not desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But we realize that that's an unfulfilled desire in the sense that not all come to repentance. So God can desire something in one hand and decree something else for some greater good or for some greater reason. Uh, yeah, that which is necessary for the greater good and God's greater glory is how we often say it. So you, you could say that God decreed that, that there would be sacrifices because of the necessity of it, because of sin, but yet didn't take pleasure in it. In the same way, he doesn't take pleasure in the death of any wicked. Right. Right. God, it says, and we need to keep all of these passages just as firmly in our hearts and minds, lest we become unbalanced or, uh, you know, through wrong emphasis, that God does not take pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. But yet, God decreed that the wages of sin is death. Does that make sense? I think it's a necessary distinction to understand an awful lot of passages in the Bible. So, I think that's involved here. So, keep that in your mind. No extra charge for theology. Okay, Hebrews 10, 9. And then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Okay, we've been discussing this for a couple chapters. What's the first? The first what? The covenant, the old covenant, the covenant that was established at Sinai. The the second would be the new covenant. Right? So the first is the old covenant, the second is the new. The old covenant, we've had a whole list of its deficiencies. It had a succession of priests that died, it had priests who could only enter the holiest place once a year, and that had priests who had to sacrifice for their own sins, 
and then for the sins of the people. It had a deficient sacrifice that the blood of bulls and goats can't cleanse a conscience. And so we have a list here in contrast in Hebrews of the deficiency of the first because it was pointing forward to the second, which is the new covenant. And what are the superiorities of the new covenant? Well, we have a, a one high priest who's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have a better blood atonement, the blood of Jesus, that washes away sins, that will cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We have a high priest who is a permanent intercessor in the presence of God. For example, the, the high priest in the Old Testament could go in if he did all the prescribed sacrifices and did everything the way God intended. He could go in once, make the sacrifice at a day of atonement and go out. But he couldn't stay in there as an intercessor. He couldn't stay in God's presence because he was a sinner. But Jesus actually abides in, at the right hand of the Father. And so he has a better priesthood in that, that he perpetually makes intercession for his people. So it's a superior covenant. Yes. Under the old covenant, did the people have the Holy Spirit? Because under the new covenant, when we, we enter into the new covenant, we're given the Holy Spirit. And in the old covenant, is a type that they have the Holy Spirit then. Okay, I'll repeat the question in case for people that are listening on the internet. The question is, did they have the Holy Spirit under the old covenant? After the sacrifice. One time sins were atoned for under the sacrifice. Did, did they, yeah, let's say they came to God by faith. There's a certain amount of mystery here, but let me tell you what I do know. I do know that the Holy Spirit was operative in the Old Testament. David said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit came upon uh, priests and prophets and kings, and they spoke. In what sense was the Holy Spirit indwelling, if that's the correct word, regenerating people of faith in the Old Testament? Now, as I understand it, Obviously, he was at work or they wouldn't have had faith because faith comes as a gift of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is... In fact, we're going to look at some verses if we get that far today on the Holy Spirit inspiring the Bible. But nevertheless, in some way that I don't know if I can totally describe, but I know it's there, there it's pretty clear in the New Testament that when Jesus came... And he said, I'm going to go away and send the Holy Spirit, that there was something unique going to happen at Pentecost that was not the way it was in the Old Testament. And that that is shown by the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel. That I pour out my Spirit on your maidservants and your men servants and your young men and your old men. And that there was a sense of this people of God receiving the Holy Spirit in some greater way than was true before. Now, I'll, Cindy, and then I'm going to see what Ryan has to say. Start thinking, Ryan. It better be good. Okay, yes. <laughs> okay, so there's a permanency that seems to be true in the New Testament that was less so in the Old. Okay. I agree that there is a certain degree of mystery we just have to humble ourselves and say we're not going to know every end and all because we're dealing with the sovereign will of the God here. 
But I think kind of general principle is regarding salvation, I think Bob made the point, and I think he's correct, that there is absolutely no way anyone can come to faith apart from the Holy Spirit coming and freeing them from their unbelief and seeing them. Uh, we read Romans 3. Uh, no one seeks after God. So the Holy Spirit must come and convict and regenerate someone in order for them to see. So that, that's been that way for all time, ever since the fall. So in that sense, the Holy Spirit is present, producing faith in the people. I think uh, the way the scriptures speak of the Holy Spirit oftentimes is a gifting. Uh, we read, you know, people who were going to build a tabernacle were given the Holy Spirit as kings, given the Holy Spirit. So with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, there was this big change because now all of a sudden, all the members of the kingdom are given this glorious task in the body of Christ. Number one, to bear witness to his word. And number two, we have different tasks. We're gifted by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. We're each given diverse and different gifts to serve the body of Christ. So I think those general things are, we're all given, just as in the Old Testament, someone was given this special duty to, to build a tabernacle or whatever, whatever the special way the Holy Spirit came, that's universal now in the church. We all have the Holy Spirit and we all are given gifts that are specifically spiritual gifts to administer in building the body of Christ. I really think those are general principles, but again, there's a mystery to that. Well, also the idea of the anointing is different. See, in the Old Testament, the anointing of the Holy Spirit was for the... Sometimes it talks about the high priest being anointed, sometimes kings, sometimes prophets. But generally, you would not say that all the people of, of God were anointed. That term was restricted. Whereas under the New Covenant, it says you all have an anointing from the Holy One. And both in Second Corinthians and First John, it says every Christian is anointed. And that goes back to the whole issue of our ability to be able to proclaim the gospel. To, we're, we're prophets. We're all prophets in that sense that we can call people to repentance and believe. We're given this message. We're all given this message. It isn't like under the old covenant where we had there one prophet that had the pipeline to God that he would take to the people. We all have this one common message given to us to faithfully the ones for all the saints. I think that's the intent of the Joel passage in Acts. And when Paul says you may all prophesy one by one, uh, there's a passage in the Old Testament where some people were prophesying and they, they came to Moses about it and he says, would that all God's people were prophets. That's what Moses said. And I think the intent of the Joel passage is that now this universal outpouring of the Holy Spirit is such that all believers can authoritatively not give new revelation, but to speak for God concerning the terms of the new covenant. We can all proclaim the terms of the covenant and the means of access to God through Christ. So, in a sense, that's prophesying. Um, okay, Diane and then uh, Mike. Uh, yeah, it, it, well, there's another passage that's kind of interesting. Remember in John 14, 15, 16, where Jesus is talking about the gift of the Spirit? He says, the Holy Spirit is with you and he will be in you. Remember that verse? So, again, I think it's making it something that when Christ died on the cross and the veil was rent and access to the presence of God was made, there was also a provision for an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is somehow more personal and significant 
than what they understood under the old covenant. Forever. Yeah. So there's no coming and going, as Cindy said. Mike. Yeah, that's the watershed event is the cross. And whatever was true, and I, you know, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is not as clearly uh, explained in the Old Testament as it is in the New. Well, whatever was true as far as the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament in believers, there was a greater degree of separation than there is after the cross. So I think there is a change, yes. And the, and the way I looked at that is that in the same way that the Holy Spirits are active in the prophets in the Old Testament, we know that. And it says in the New that they, he was speaking to them about the coming of Christ. Amen. It was veiled to them. They longed to look forward to see what this meant. So the mystery that I see is that the Holy Spirit was active bringing the gospel or the message of the gospel to Abraham and all these people, you know, Eve and uh, speaking to people, the message of the gospel it was still veiled and therefore it was limited. He wasn't come in his expression of what he was bringing because it was still veiled. And after Jesus' resurrection, when the plans of God and the gospel of God were rock solid and clear, now defined black and white, then we could receive the Holy Spirit, the message of the gospel. This is the message that he's contained in, in black and white, and it was much clearer because we could understand it with our minds, have him in our hearts, and believe in this message that he's given us. So in that context, he was there in the Old Testament in a veiled way through all of these precursors of the gospel looking forward and afterwards he pointed back to something that was clear and because Christ has sacrificed once for all he will never be taken away the gospel message and us bringing that message to the people stands yeah that reminds me of the passage in Corinthians we looked at last week we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and so the Holy Spirit removes the veil if you're, if you're a born again Christian, then you can say amen to that. You, if you remember what it was like when you met the Lord, it's very much like a veil coming off. You maybe grew up in Sunday school like I did and you heard Bible stories and, you know, about heaven and you heard about heaven, you heard about Jesus and all these stories. But when you meet the Lord, the veil's taken away by the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden, it's just, this is real. It becomes real. It's alive. I remember the, when I became a Christian, they told me to read John, the Gospel of John. And I'd tried reading the Bible before, but I just always got bored with it and went on to Jules Verne. And uh, whatever I like to read is, I like to read a lot, but I wasn't reading the Bible. But when I became a Christian, I started reading the Gospel of John. I was so excited. This really happened. This is really Jesus. I can really know him. That's what it means that so the Holy Spirit removes the veil. So that's the new covenant. Let's go back to Hebrews now. Hebrews 10 and verse 9. He's, oh, uh, I, the first, I, we were on that, but I wanted to look up some verses. Behold, I've come to do thy will. So one thing that's clear about Messiah is he came to always do the will of the Father. He perfectly pleased the Father. He perfectly obeyed the Father. So uh, Messiah came to do the will of God. And this is talking about the efficacy of Christ's great work of grace. Uh, Leif, could you uh, look up Hebrews 7, 19, or excuse me, 18 and 19. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. For on the one hand, 
Okay, there's bringing in of a better what? Hope. Hope through which we draw near to God. So, the idea of the new covenant is clearly linked to drawing near to God. This is a difference. The ability to draw near to God because of the finished work of Christ is different under the new covenant. Is it also different because under the old covenant, we saw fire and brimstone on the mountain and everybody trembled. But under the new covenant, Jesus showed us, he said, who has seen me has seen the Father. So we can draw near to God because we know who he is because it's expressed to us in the gospel of Jesus. Before we just had a mountain smoking. It's not nearly the same. You can't draw near to a mountain smoking, but you can draw near to Jesus, who is the Father, manifest to us in the flesh. Yeah, that's how. That's exactly how Hebrews starts. Hebrews one one and two. God has spoken the fathers and the prophets of many portions, many ways, has in these last days spoken to us through His Son, who is the express image of His person. Hopostasis. Exactly. Well, let's go to verse 10. Hebrews 10.10. 10. By this will, it's a repeated word from verse 9, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, what the author of Hebrews is doing is pulling out three Greek words from his psalm quotation that we were studying last week. He's been quoting from the psalm. Now, which one was it again? He was quoting from... Which one was it? 40? Okay, 46 through 8. And so he's pulled out three words from that. Will, offering, and body. All from the Septuagint. So by this will, we have been sanctified. The will of God. The will of God that was um, implemented in the coming of Messiah who obeyed God and provided the sacrifice. It says, we have been sanctified. Uh, so, uh, that's in the perfect tense, meaning that it happened once, but it continues on. And it was through the offering of the body of Jesus. Oh, notice the last phrase. Once for all. How many times have we read that in Hebrews? Over and over and over again, we read once for all, once for all, once for all. When Jesus died on the cross, what was one of the things he said? It is finished. And Hebrews takes up on that theme and says once for all. You know, that's the end of man-made religion right there. All religions teach some sort of works where you never can be perfected. You work, 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 work. And you never really get anywhere. It's like Jehovah Witnesses. You spend your whole life passing out watchtower tracks, and when you get done, you don't get to go to heaven. <laughs> that's what I'd say. Why bother? But that's, that, that's man's religion. And so this once for all takes away the teeth of false religion. It takes away the bondage of human effort and works trying to please God and never actually achieving sanctification. Now, 
let's talk about another issue here. We have been sanctified. It's going to come up again in another verse soon. We have been sanctified. How can it say, if we believe in, which we do, progressive sanctification, how can it also say we have been sanctified? Because it seems like it's already done. Okay? So it's a foregone conclusion. In a sense, then, if we looked at it that way, it would be like this prophetic perfect you see in the book of Isaiah and elsewhere. The prophetic perfect speaks of something that's yet future as if it's already accomplished. But I wonder if there isn't some sense in which it's actually already true that we've been sanctified. I think that is. Have you heard about the difference between positional and practical? So there's the positional, who we are in Christ, considered holy by God because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, have been sanctified. Now, also, in Hebrews, we need to remember that sanctification has a ceremonial quality to it in the Old Testament that's somewhat carried over in the New. In the Old Testament, having been sanctified meant you were suitable to do service to God. All right? Ceremonially clean. Now, in the New Covenant, having been sanctified means that you are fit to come into God's presence because of the work of Christ. We are fit to go to the throne of grace. We're fit to go to heaven when we die. We're fit to be with God, to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's something that's already true. Having been sanctified, that's true. We are cleansed. We're fit to be worshipers of God without offending Him because we're clean. But when we talk about the not yet, the progressive part of it, it's that our lives actually literally change practically so that we become more and more like Jesus. That's the progressive part. Dick. Well, Romans starts out with justification. It starts out with the universal sin, universal human guilt, Romans 1, 2, in the first part of 3. Then the imputation of Christ's righteousness, legally, the end of Romans 3, propitiation, atonement for sins, uh, salvation. And then it goes into the discussion of justification by faith, Romans 4, Romans 5, the Adam-Christ analogy, Romans 6, we're no longer slaves of sin. Right? That would be positionally. And then we start going into the practical. Then it says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Because you're not a slave to sin, you've been sanctified. Therefore, don't let sin reign. Showing it's still a live issue. Okay? It's still very possible to act very unsanctified. <laughs> not that we recommend it. But it's... a. Uh, that's like the old joke. Somebody says, Pastor, what's, what you preaching on a day? And he says, sin. He says, the other guy says, well, are you for it or against it? <laughs> well, we're strictly against it. Uh, and then Romans 7 is the dilemma of the, of the believer. Oh, wretched man that I am. Okay, I'm sanctified, but this doesn't look very sanctified to me. Uh, Paul discusses that. And then there's the triumphal work of the Holy Spirit that's revealed in Romans chapter 8 that we have an assurance that it's going to lead us to conformity to the image of Christ. Talking about that, I have something positive to say about Rick Warren this morning. No, literally. Literally true. 
I reread. We went on to went to Tucson. I took my book along, went through it page by page. You took notes on a separate piece of paper on every page. You must be a delight to vacation. <laughs> well, yeah, what a fun vacation, huh? Well, anyhow, I, I did that in order to make sure I, I didn't miss anything. And I found some very good chapters in there. And one of the things I've lamented about this purpose-driven life in some of my discussion is the lack of exegetical work on the passages. You know, throw out a proof text and then go on to what you want to say without pausing long enough to try to do any work to show the verse really means that and that you're making proper application. I found one section of exegetical work in that book. And it was on Romans 8.28 in one of the chapters. And Rick Warren did a fabulous job of expounding Romans 8.28. He took it section by section, explained what it meant. He actually applied it. He said, this only applies to believers. The Bible doesn't say all things work out to the good of everybody. Which is one of my complaints earlier on because he doesn't make it clear who he's applying it to. But there he did said, if you're not a believer, things aren't going to work out for good. That was good. He dealt with the issues in there. So, I'm going to, I have to acknowledge good when I see it. And that was a very good uh, explanation of Romans 8.28, of which I'm in full agreement. But what is Romans 8.28 promising us is that ultimately we be conformed to the image of Christ because of God's work of grace through the Holy Spirit. And so... That's that's how this works. So, we have been sanctified. That means we're fit to come into God's presence. We're legally justified. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ. We're holy ones. Paul says those who are to the saints who are in Ephesus. And he didn't mean St. Christopher. <laughs> but believers, right? So, it positionally sanctified ones who are ultimately being sanctified impractically so that we ultimately become like Jesus. All right, so we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Okay, I have some uh, cross-references. Mary, uh, Zechariah 13.1, Diane, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Edith, 1 Corinthians 6.11, 1 Corinthians 6.11. 1 Corinthians 6.11. All right, gotcha. Uh, Noel, Hebrews 13.12. <laughs> Zechariah is in the Old Testament. <laughs> then narrow it down. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Okay, it says, on that day, a fountain will be opened to cleanse them from impurity. So obviously, there was in the Old Testament looking forward to something that wasn't true then. There's this future day when there would be cleansing for the house of Israel. So there's an Old Testament prophecy of what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Diane. Wow, that's a good verse. By His doing, you're in Christ. Keep that straight. It wasn't us, it was Him. By His doing, you're in Christ. And what did He become to us? Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 
Very strong statement. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Okay, and such were some of you. And there was a big list of really bad things. Okay, sins that will indicate that we're not really Christian. But he says, such were some of you, but you were sanctified. So God can take the vilest sinner and redeem this person and make us sanctified, fit to go into God's presence, no matter what our past was like. You know, that really needs to be preached more, in my opinion. I get emails. I, when I got back from Tucson, I had I came down yesterday, spent all day here, and by the end of the day I was done with my emails that I had missed in the five days I was gone. And this was interacting theologically with people asking questions that are reading articles. And one of the ones was, Somebody was wondering about this theophostic ministry, and I get the same question over and over, and it is, how am I going to deal with my past? Uh, this one, in a very good email, this lady said, you know, I've been, I'm doing theophostic ministry, and I've had an abusive parent, abusive parents, they're still abusing me, even though they're in their 80s, they, they constantly, you're telling me I'm not really a Christian and everything is wrong with me. Uh, anything I try to say, they just, you know, beat me over the head with it. And how am I going to be free from all of this past? Because you're telling me that what I thought was helping me isn't right. What do you have to offer? Something I'm just trying to summarize an email. And, and I'm thinking about that. Is I wonder I wonder if Christians in general are hearing enough about the glories of redemption, atonement, forgiveness, who, that we are sanctified in Christ, and that He's pleased with us because of the blood of Jesus. And uh, then I wonder if we're also hearing enough about. If indeed we forgive other people, okay, like our parents, if indeed our final trust is that God's going to bring us to glory, if indeed I go through this life wounded, I've often used this illustration, if somebody had an accident when they were a youth and they lost one of their arms, and later they become a Christian, they're still going to go through life with one arm. But they can count on in the resurrection, they'll have two. And I think that there's also an application emotionally. And that, the, the, the lady that emailed me really was, I appreciate it, it was a very honest email. She says, I can appreciate that, because she got that out of my article. That I don't know how all this works, but very, it's very possible that losing an arm, you go through life without it. I might go through life without something I could have had if I had really bad parents. It could very well be true that I would be somewhat of a different person if I had really bad abusive parents than if I had really wonderful supportive ones. That might make me different. But by the grace of God, as Paul said, I am what I am. And God will use those things. By the way, that's another thing I could commend Rick Warren for. I found a chapter in there where he discusses that and I am in agreement with him. That even all those bad things that happen, God will ultimately use to make you the kind of person that He can use in some way. I can agree with that. That's, that's a good thing. And so, 
I just think that we live in a culture where, where we're being told that if everything is right, then we won't have any problems. And all, all of the things that we don't like about our life is going to go away and be different. But that's not what the Bible promises. It promises us grace to help in our time of need. That in our weaknesses, God will make us strong. That the things that Satan meant for evil, God can mean for good, like it says to Joseph. And that um, God sovereignly will use those things that I can't change if, I put, if I'm trusting Him in faith. And I think that the therapeutic culture says that somehow all this stuff is just going to go away and is causing people probably more distressed because it really doesn't quite all go away. Ryan, you had something to say? And I really think that it's right. There's not enough focus on what the, the cross. The cross is everything. And when you look at like in Galatians 3, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Nevertheless, I live by faith in the Son of God. And really, when, you, you, when you're united with Christ, the old life, even though we're going to be struggling with it, the prom, there's that promise that it's been, you know, it has been crucified. It, it's gone. And yeah, we're going to be, strugg- we're going to be struggling with it, but there's that promise that it's, you know, it's the already not yet. It's over with. It's, the, it's a done deal because of what Christ did. We can look forward to that confidence that he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. And that uh, all the sin and death that plagues us and suffering from our sin is is taken care of in the cross. And when He appears, we're going to be like Him. I think I really do think that it's it's it goes back to the age-old problem of not preaching Jesus Christ been crucified and the believer's relationship with that, just these techniques and what have you. Ryan, I got a question. We can kind of discuss publicly here. How much value is there in going through the details of our own life um, for therapeutic purposes? Uh, I think that's an issue here. In other words, is it going to help me if I go back through and try to examine, uh, let's say, how other people sinned against me, how I sinned, the things that happened to me? How much detail do we need to go through in order to try to find healing? What do you think? I, I don't think... I mean, it goes back to the cross. If you die to that, I don't think going back and, and rehashing it is going to do you much good because I really think fixing your eyes on, on, on God, the healing power of God, the healing power of the cross, and the, the grace that we have in Christ is what we need to be focused on. Uh, that doesn't mean that, let's say we've, we've wronged our parents or, or something like that, and you, you come to faith. I think it's a good thing to go and confess to your parents. Okay, I'm sorry I disarmed you. You know, and things like that. But but to turn it into this big therapeutic, gotta go make amends, have to go back to everything. And it really goes back to I think um, uh, Colossians uh, chapter three, um, when it talks about the, uh, fix your mind things that are above. God thinks beneath. Well, then Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I press on to the high call of the goal. Now, it doesn't mean literally forget because he just got done saying what it was. That's what's interesting. Paul says, I was a Pharisee. I, I was a persecutor of the church. I, you know, carting righteousness in the law, blameless, blah, blah, blah. Generally, we have to remember we're wretched sinners saved by grace. Yeah. So Paul explained what he was and then he says, I forgot it. So he obviously didn't literally forget it. But what he says is, I don't take that into account 
as far as who I am now and where I'm going, I'm more looking forward to Christ. I was thinking about that passage you said earlier. Such were some of you, idolaters, homosexuals, fornicators. He has a pretty serious list of people. Yeah. He lists out, and such were some of you. And then he's, he points them forward. He doesn't have a, a therapeutic program to undo the stuff that such were some of you. I just think about this Paul Cain thing that came up. Well, he points back to Pete. He says, you were saint. You were sanctified. Yeah. I, it's, it, you know, let me, uh, my personal history, I wrote an article kind of burying my soul about what I used to do when I was a young man in the ministry when I was into the therapeutic version. Uh, I spent five years working with people who had a lot of hurts and troubles, you know, trying to sort through demonic influence, inner healing, things that happened to people. And I developed all kinds of theories to try to help people. And I think I, I, I believe I was sincerely trying to help, help people. But you know what led me eventually to study? Well, you remember, Diane, you were living there with me when I did that. <laughs> but what the, the thing that finally got to me was this. The people that I saw who were really radically changed basically were changed at their conversion for the most part. And they were like the elders and the leaders. And I went after years of this. I said, I went and said, you know, how come you guys aren't going? Through, never went through this therapy. How come you never had the demons cast out? And how come you never had the inner healing? Well, I don't know. I just came to the Lord and started serving Him. Uh, the people that I was trying to help were. I felt like they were being strung along by me, suggesting that somehow. There was this process that had an end to it that was going to change everything. And I wasn't seeing it. In. I think that I think our preaching was doing them a disservice. Well, that could be. I, I don't know what motivated them, but yeah, they kept coming back. Yeah. But I think if we had better teaching about the finished work of Christ, better support in the sense of the means of grace, the fellowship of the believers, uh, that you know, if you bring people in, some people hurt more than others, some people are more damaged than others. That's absolutely true. But they should all be. Everyone should be welcomed, loved, part of the family of God. Together, we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. How God works in us. And I think that saying the reason why you're struggling, let's say, with more than somebody else might be, is because some hidden thing happened to you that we have to discover in order to undo, created doubts in people's minds about the efficacy of the finished work of Christ. And the problem that I saw, and I wrote an article about this, was that you never knew when you got everything. You never knew where you found every hidden memory. You never knew what secret sin had let a demon in. And so there was no end to it. And we went on and on and on and on until I finally cried out to God and said, I can't keep doing this. Lord, I need an answer if I'm going to stay in the ministry. And the answer was the, you know, the gospel, the finished work of Christ, and, and just trust the Lord. Now, Dean, you've been patient here. We had the conversation on the, on the way up to Stillwater and back, but I, I think part of the struggle that Christians have today is between trusting in the written word of God and trusting secular psychology. Secular psychology is just 
it's everywhere. And when the world looks to secular psychology to fix them, it's a red flag to me. The world is doing it. There better be a red flag. Uh, you've, got, you've got to stand firm on the Word of God. This, this contains everything we need to be complete as Christians. God didn't leave anything out. So it boils down to where do you want to put your faith? you want to put it in the Word of God or you want to put it in secular psychology? I got a question, Dean. What if somebody does what you say and they put their word, their faith in the Word of God, in the faith work of Christ, but they are still hurting? In other words, damaged, sorrows over broken relationship, broken marriage, broken families. Maybe they're hated by their family. What would you say to somebody? Well, you deal with each sin or each hurt individually, but if there's a broken relationship, you as a Christian go to that person and do what you can to mend that relationship. And if it's received, praise the Lord. If it's not, you've done what God requires of you to do. I, You know what verses I sent back to that email? The one where it says, anyone who loses, loses father, mother, brother, sisters for my sake will receive father, mother, brother, sisters in this life and in the world to come eternal life. And sometimes the only thing we have left is the family of God. Okay, well, it isn't always possible to fix these broken relationships. And your parents may continue to hate you no matter what you do. And Jesus, but Jesus promised that he'd give us a, a family and the family of God. And that may be what we have. And I'll tell you what, I like my family of God. So, Ryan... The question that you asked me: uh, what, what, what do we do if we still have damage relations, or you know, hurts and stuff? You know what? They're still going to be there. You're always we are living in this world, and that doesn't mean that that you might be able to that that he, that even that healing might not come. The Lord can grant healing if He, if he so desires. But I know Bob and I in our ministries, as far as dealing with people who are hurting, who are asking, you know, what what, what to do. Second Corinthians 13 is such a comfort, and it's so real when Jesus says to Paul, who is suffering with this thorn, which we don't know what it was, when he says, "My grace is sufficient." And sufficiency is such a, a, a real thing. It doesn't promise, okay, you're going to have a carefree life for the rest of uh, until you get to glory. No. You're going, to, you're going to suffer. He didn't take his thorn away for, for his own solid purposes. So, you know what? If, if someone would come to me and had, I was abused as a child, I can't promise them that they're not going to still have hurts until they enter glory because of that. But we can promise if you're a believer in Christ, is Christ's grace is sufficient. And you have a promise to do your life. Right. Reminds me, Francis, I'll get you to camp. Francis Schaeffer, I liked what Schaeffer said. I read a lot of Schaeffer in the 80s when I was trying to get my theological head on straight. And Schaeffer said, God gives us substantial healing now. Substantial, meaning as real, as meaningful. We're not the same people as real. Substantial healing. But the complete healing is in the future. And how substantial is between us and God, but we, if we're faithful, yes, can. Good. Amen. Uh, somebody had a verse. Noel, read your verse so we can be done. You are the most patient man in Sunday school. What was it again? Did you wear out your finger? Hebrews 13, 12. Did I read 11? 
Yes, please. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Jesus suffered outside the gate, just like the sacrifices of the old. So it's pointing to that offering of Christ's body. So, thank you for helping discuss Hebrews. We'll start on verse 11 next week.